I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2007. I hope you enjoy it. Well, with the anniversary of D-Day just behind us, uh, a lot of us have been doing a lot of looking back to the Second World War. And uh, I've been doing so in uh, a book which really surprised me at how interesting it was and thought-provoking, a book called 1941, The Greatest Year in Sports. And, of course, we tend to think of 1941 about really one huge event, the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor and our entry into the Second World War. 1941 was an important year in many other ways, and in a very important way, a tremendously significant year for the world of sports. And in a sense, sports meant a lot to Americans in that year because it was uh, an opportunity to escape from an increasingly frightening, dark world. And that's part of what uh, Mike Vaccaro writes about in his book, 1941, The Greatest Year in Sports, Two Baseball Legends, Two Boxing Champs, and the Unstoppable Thoroughbred Who Made History in the Shadow of War. Mike Vaccaro is a sports columnist for the New York Post. He's also written uh, Emperors and Idiots. He's won a number of different awards, and I hope he wins some awards for this wonderful book published by Doubleday, again called 1941, The Greatest Year in Sports. And Mike Vaccaro, we welcome you to the morning show. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me, Greg. And it is such an intriguing idea for a book. I'm just wondering... Uh, what the genesis of it was. At what point did it occur to you that this year of 1941 was worth examining through the lens of sports? Good question, Greg. And I can really actually disseminate it to one moment of clarity, really. Uh, and uh, that came during the 2001 World Series. Uh, and I was sharing an elevator at Yankee Stadium with, uh, with Phil Rizzuto. Uh, and uh, you may obviously remember that that, that, that that came less than two months after the terrible events of September 11th, and uh, what Phil had talked about in that elevator to me was he was impressed with just how much baseball had provided an outlet for people not only in New York City but also the rest of the country, especially that World Series, gave them the opportunity to, for two or three hours a night to just kind of forget their troubles, wrap their brains around baseball, and not have to worry you know, constantly about all the things that were kind of attacking our, our consciousness back in those days. And he said it, 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 uh, it reminded him a great deal of his rookie season of 1941, and uh, the, uh, the quote he gave me that day, which really kind of stayed with me for, for a number of years to the point where I really thought it uh, was worthy of exploring as a book idea, he said, I read the sports pages every day because I was afraid of what I'd find in the other parts of the newspaper. And to me, what that underlines is just, it, it, it's not just what sports is capable of giving us every day as an entertainment value, but what it's able to give us in times of crisis like 1941 uh, and like other times in our nation's history where sports can provide an outlet to allow us to kind of find exile from from the uh, the, 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 the swirling of the, reg- of the real world. And I mm. think that that's really what uh, what sports provided as much as anything in 1941 was a respite from, from all the troubles that seem to flood the front page every day. Right. You know, I'm intrigued by something, as you as you mentioned, uh, this this story, uh, that that in the United States, in the wake of 9-11, for a time almost all professional sports uh, ceased to function 
for a few days there. I mean, I, I still have a copy of Sports Illustrated from that next week, and it's something mm-hmm. about the the day that the sports died, or I forget what it was, but I mean, almost everything was canceled, certainly not every single thing, but so much of our uh, professional athletic life as a nation ground to a halt along with a lot of other stuff in our in our in our country uh and and it's kind of interesting to think about that phenomenon versus 1941 where it it, it seems that things went on even on December 7th and December 8th you you talk of the baseball game that was played that day right i mean actually it was a football game between the Dodgers and the Giants they were the 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 the, the same namesakes of the baseball teams and in the middle of that game, really the first way that a lot of the people with the polo grounds that day, the, 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 the way they understood what was happening, that something was happening, was military personnel kept being called to, uh, to, 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 to receive phone calls, which was obviously very unusual. And, uh, you know, there were some portable radios, some early, uh, very uh, basic portable radios that were in, uh, in the stadium that day, and that's kind of how people got the word that, that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. But you're right, the football game continued. They played the NFL championship a couple of weeks after that. Um, you know, there's a, you know, and, and baseball, you know, even though baseball pondered shutting stores during, during the war for the duration, Franklin Roosevelt actually, uh, in what became known for history's sake as the Green Light Letter, uh, urged Commissioner Landis to keep baseball going as a source of national morale. So, um, really, you know, as much as, 40, as much as sports provided fuel for people in 1941, uh, it, it, it continued to do so even, even, even throughout the war. Although at a far diminished level, only because many of the people who, were, who would be performing the feats in '41, you know, had to go off and serve in the in the army or the navy during the war. Yeah, that's another amazing part of this story. And before we dig into some of the specifics, I want you to uh, talk about one other thing that uh, is so intriguing and and helps frame the conversation. I think a quote given uh, by General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, who uh, at the start of 1941, you tell us, was, was a, a relatively obscure figure and, of course, uh, uh, very soon would become one of the most famous and important of all Americans. Uh, the quote uh, he says about, about sports is that upon the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that on other fields on other days will bear the fruits of victory. What an interesting way to look at athletic competition yeah i agree with you in fact it's funny originally i was going to uh i was going to title the book fields of friendly strife and uh because that that, that, that to me that quote was so uh, uh relevant to what to, to 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 what i was trying to say in the book and you know ultimately of the day we thought it might be a little bit too obscure to to kind of get the message across in the title so we kind of went with the with the more straight-ahead one that we have now of 1941, uh, but uh, but but I, I agree. And you know, MacArthur was a was was a huge fan of the West Point football team. He'd obviously been a student manager there during his undergraduate days at West Point, and he was a fan of of, of, of he was a fan of all sports in general, and understood that uh, there was something really relevant and really meaningful to uh, to performing, you know, the, uh, in sports, especially at the time. When the uh, you know when the American consciousness was was for the most part uh, caught up in other more meaningful things and in '41 obviously you know it, w- one of the interesting parts of my research uh, was that uh, I, I read I read the, the New York Times every day for that year and it was mm. interesting because what would happen was you know you'd re- every, you know, every day literally every day it would be something else that would just be littering the front page from Poland from Czechoslovakia 
you know, from, from, from Germany, from Russia, from Japan. It was every single day to the point where, you know, here I was sitting in a, in a library 65 years after the fact, and even I found myself saying, let me get to the sports page. I need to take a break. I need to see what Joe mm-hmm. DiMaggio did that day. I need to see what Ted Williams did that day. And to me, if, if that's the way I felt, you know, in, in a safe cocoon of a library long after the fact, you can only imagine what people who were living during 1941, and especially those who were carrying draft cards in their pocket, um, you know, what they were thinking about every day as, as this just ceaseless assault of information came and attacked them every morning. Mm. We're speaking with Mike Vaccaro about his book, 1941, The Greatest Year in Sports. Uh, one of the things you do in your book, uh, you take some time in the introduction to uh, help us, uh, in your words, understand what the, the landscape of sports looked like. And that's probably a really important thing to do in 2007, is to remind us of, of that landscape and of those sports which were truly significant and uh, those which had not yet maybe achieved the significance uh, which they have today. It's really true, Greg. The, the, uh, you know, right now, I guess we would consider the big four sports to be uh, baseball, football, basketball, hockey. Some would uh, substitute you know, auto racing for hockey at this point in, in, in our time. But you know, in 1941, uh, basketball, football, and hockey, and certainly auto racing, were, were, were niche sports. Uh, golf and tennis were really confined to country club sports, and, and, and you know, in 1941, we were just emerging from the Great Depression, so there wasn't much interest in country club sports. Um, the, uh, but, but, but the three sports that, you know, that really were the big three that captured the national imagination and the attention span uh, beyond any other, baseball was number one, and then boxing and horse racing were kind of in a tie for number two. And uh, to me, I mean, you know, I think that's underscored by the, by the events that I describe in greater detail in the book, the the uh, the, the, the Joe DiMaggio hitting streak, the Ted Williams uh, 406 uh, batting average, World War winning the Triple Crown, the Joe Lewis Billy Conn fight. I mean, these things. Or it's I mean, if, if 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 you consider our greatest sporting day of today is probably the Super Bowl. Um, certainly, the the Triple Crown races, certainly a heavyweight boxing fight was the equivalent in 1941 of uh, of, of that kind of just you know supernova of an event. And baseball, which is still very popular today, really did kind of rule the landscape back then, which is why DiMaggio and Williams were considered such demigods at the time. Mm. I want to turn to uh, uh, the the boxing matter in just a moment to to, to tie off of what you just uh, talked about. I do want to mention, though, something about the book which I really like, and that's the fact that actually as, as we're reading the heart and soul of your book, you don't write just about sports. I mean, you talk about these other matters that were encroaching uh, on on everyone in 1941. I mean, these really, really frightening, bewildering events, uh, maybe half a world away. Uh, and you don't just mention them in passing. I mean, you really take some time to talk about some of those important moments, uh, world events in 1941, and their impact uh, on America. Uh, I wonder if you wrestled at all with with that matter, and and whether or not to just assume that people knew that it was a scary year, or 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 exactly how you decided to handle that. I have to tell you, Greg, that's probably the the, the best question I've fielded about this book because it really was uh, a struggle in the sense that, on the one hand, I didn't want to appear to be trivializing these monumental occasions. I mean. You know, the, the, the last thing the world you want to do, you know, when you're describing a baseball game, is to juxtapose it against, you know, the, the, the German invasion of Russia, for instance, 
and, and, and make it seem like you're talking about both things as if they had you know equal impact on the human condition. Obviously, you didn't. To me, though, I, I thought it was important to to, you know, to to me the premise of the book. You know, it's it's called the greatest year in sports, and I and I firmly believe that it was. I, but, but but I wanted it to pretty obvious that I wasn't necessarily declaring it such because of what happened on the field. I mean, part of the reason why I think 41 was such a great sports year is because you not only had this great stuff happening in, in, the, in the field of play, but when you but when you juxtapose that against the backdrop of, of, of just what was happening, and we're talking about the monumental tragedies that were happening all over Europe. And, you know, it's funny, one of the things that, that, that really occurred to me is I was reading to me, I, I think there's a sense that we really didn't have as much knowledge of what was happening in Europe as we did until later on, after the war, after we liberated uh, you know, the countries, after we you know, liberated the concentration camps. What really kind of struck me, uh, really like, a, like, a, like, a, like a, uh, a punch to the face, was you would read in, this, in, in the newspapers about you know, the persecution of certain people in Europe, certainly the persecution of the Jews. This was in the newspaper. You know the laws that were being that, that that were being instituted, the pogroms that were being instituted, and uh, you know it's it's re- it's really kind of fascinating to think that that, that 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 we were aware of more than I think that we believe today we were aware of. I mean, mm. and, and, and by saying we, I mean the people. I mean, we had access to information. Now, obviously, we had no idea the vast extent of the cruelties going on. But we certainly had a hint of it, and uh, and, and, I, and I think it's important to know that 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 that, that, that if you continue to say now, there's no. And certainly, these are all the things that were swirling around the world at that time. And it explains why it's so important to celebrate what happened on fields of friendly strife during then, hmm. during that time, because because it was so uh, awesome. What was what else was happening? And to me, that was at the end of the day why I decided to to to, to give you know equal import to to the things that happened uh, away from the field, because to me, those are what inform as much as anything what happened on the field of play and why they were so important. For instance this uh, amazing heavyweight boxing championship match between the champion Joe Lewis and uh, his very uh, 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 inspiring and, 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 and interesting opponent, Billy Kahn. You talk about just ahead of that, the day before that fight, June 17, 1941, that on the front page of, of, of many of, of our country's newspapers um, was yet another story about the horror of the Nazis uh, and and the nation of Poland in this mm-hmm. particular instance. Tell our listeners what I'm talking about. Well, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's interesting because because it's not just it's not just I mean, that, and that's certainly one you know one of them. I mean, they, 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 the, the Nazis had to actually put actually built a wall around around the ghettos of, of, of Warsaw and Krakow, and and, and and that was actually in the newspaper. And that, that really fascinated me that we that, that we knew just how badly Poland as a country was being persecuted. Just how much the the the, you know, the the Jewish people of 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 that country and others are being persecuted, um, you know. It, 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 and, and like as I said, that's just one. That's just one day. I know the day before the the the, uh, the uh, Preakness, there was another story about uh, about uh, you know Jewish persecution in, in Italy, for instance, and and and, and 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 it goes on and on and on like that. And to me, I mean, there was a, the another another great juxtaposition occurred later in the month, in, on June twenty second, when. You know, more people than ever before had flocked to baseball games on that day, on June 22nd, uh, than they'd be ever before on any single day in the, in, the, in the history of baseball. And yet that morning, everybody went to the ballparks knowing that the Germans had stormed across the Russian borders and that now, you know, the, the, the war in Europe had taken just an, a monumental turn for the worse because, you know, suddenly you had these two superpowers fighting against each other. It was clear that something was going to come from that. 
Um, and, and, and you know, it, it, and that, that, that's what I was referring earlier. I mean, when you when you get a sense of that, you can understand. And I think in the book too, when you when you're talking about this stuff, you're like, you know, and you, don't, you have to be careful as to how much you go into it because you want people to say, All right, I want to go back to know about the Magio now. I want mm. to go back to know about World Away now. And I do think that that that, that, that if, if if there is a visceral sense of relief almost in this book. When they go back, you know, when when I go back to talking about the sporting events, I mean, I think that's kind of the effect I was hoping for. Right. I think that, I think that reflects the, uh, the, the the way people were in 1941 as well. Absolutely. If we start reading about the the destruction rained down on London from uh, uh, Germany's Luftwaffe, I mean, we we read that for a while in in sort of with a mounting sense of of, of horror, and then we are so grateful when we can turn our attention to. Joe DiMaggio and his magnificent hitting streak, or Joe Lewis and Billy Kahn engaging in that uh, uh, magnificent battle. Uh, you're right, it's, it's an experience which we have now that is something akin, probably uh, uh, only a shadow, of what sports fans were ex- experiencing in that very same year. Yeah, I, 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 and I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because at the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about uh, about about the 2001, and obviously how you know kind of that time kind of lent itself to me to to to, to kind of looking as to as to what 1941 really meant. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I recall you know covering sports in the aftermath of September 11th, and to me, the, the it, 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 it it sounds so strange, but the, the moment I knew that things were going to be okay in terms of sports and in terms of our lives returning to a semblance of normalcy, was I was at Chase Stadium uh, about. Two and a half weeks after the event, maybe 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 sooner, after the uh, you know after the terrorist strike, and uh, Armando Menendez was pitching for the Mets, and he gave up a game-winning home run to the Braves, and he was booed off the mound, and I can't tell you how refreshing it was to hear boos, <laughs> uh. you know, because that you know, all of a sudden people were like, you know what, we're here with baseball, we our team is lost, boo, right, <laughs> throw the bum out, exactly, yeah. and, to, and to me that was kind of a sense that you know what things are going to be okay, you know. <laughs> That's a great story. I'm reminded of, I, I tell a similar story, not really in the world of sports, but I can remember, this is actually sooner after uh, 9-11, I think it was maybe Thursday morning, possibly Friday morning, but I remember waking up, uh, turning on the television, and instead of seeing Katie Couric and Matt Lauer in continuous broadcast without commercials, turned on the television and there was a Burger King commercial. And I remember thinking... Um, I mean, as terrible as these events are, which have just occurred and the ramifications of which we are still grappling, uh, the fact that we can now we can turn on the TV and see a Burger King commercial just made it seem like we're going to be okay. We're going to survive this intact somehow. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, to me, you know, the, 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 the effect that I would describe in 1941, to me, it, it, it's certainly applicable to our, to our current world. I mean, you look at how much the city of New Orleans embraced the, the, the Saints football team last year uh, and, and how much you know, their march to the NFC Championship game meant to that city. And it would have anyway, but I mean, the fact that it happened you know, a year after Katrina brought that city to its knees, it was obvious that this wasn't just a football team that they were rallying around. It was the city of New Orleans. And it gave them a chance. Look, I mean, a lot of the people who come in the Superdome on Sundays, some of them might have actually have, have spent time inside the Superdome during the worst hours of Katrina. And some of them, you know, certainly were still living in situations that were less than ideal, and so there would be, you know, their lives are hardly normal. Yet for four hours a day on Sundays last year, they were able to forget that and kind of just, you know, devote their attentions and their energies to, 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 to watching a football team. And that's valuable. And I think that, you know, 
often we ask ourselves, you know, are sports too trivial? Do we spend too much time devoting our energies to sports? And it's moments like that, and certainly moments like 1941, I think, that, that, that you realize, you know what, sports really do have a meaningful uh, part of our culture and, uh, and deserve that part uh, of our hearts. One of the most interesting stories uh, in 1941, we've alluded to it a couple of times already, is that there is already in place a peacetime draft. And it is a draft with a, a, a net which is cast far and wide and which includes some of the most important of, of professional athletes. And uh, that's an interesting theme throughout this book is uh, our athletes living with that reality, uh, just like, of course, ordinary Americans, and some of them grappling with it in ways that turned out to be kind of unfortunate. Just touch for a moment on, uh, on, on that uh, real difficult uh, wrinkle in this story. You know, to me, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, one of the aspects that makes it so extraordinary what these men were able to accomplish in that year is that there was no guarantee in 1941 that life as we knew it was ever going to return to normalcy. I mean, who knew if there would even be a baseball season in 1942? Who knew if there was a war that would, that, that would be wrapped up in five years, in ten years, in fifteen years? You had no way of knowing that. And so there was no way of knowing that these guys were playing their last baseball games ever in 1941. Uh, and, and for them to perform at this level, all of them with draft numbers in their pockets, and that's the thing I think, and you just, you just touched upon that, uh, there were a number of reminders about just how vulnerable everybody was to, uh, to the draft in those, in, in those days. Jimmy Stewart, the actor, for one, uh, wound up uh, being drafted uh, early in 41, and in fact got a deferral for a while because he wasn't strong, he, he wasn't big enough, I mean, his, he was too skinny, he had, he had actually gained weight before he could go in the Army. But the one that really kind of fascinated me was Hank Greenberg. And, and, and to understand who Hank Greenberg was in 1941, he essentially was Alex Rodriguez today. He was a two-time American League MVP before the age of 30. He was the most feared slugger in the American League. Uh, he was a guy people talked about uh, possibly being able to break Babe Ruth's home run record the way that we talk about Alex Rodriguez now uh, someday breaking what will then be Barry Bonds' record. And... Uh, he, he's a guy who wound up. You know, he, he made kind of a kind of a fateful decision uh, when, when, when he registered for the draft, as opposed to registering as his brother did uh, in their legal address, which was their parents' home in the Bronx. Uh, he registered in the place where he lived in Detroit, where he played for the Tigers, which was a hotel. And the problem with that is that we're in the Bronx. There's so many people that it was obvious that your your draft number would necessarily be lower because of the just just the sheer volume of people. There weren't that many people who lived in that area of Detroit because it was a place where we you know, mostly hotels, so you mostly had transient residents there. And so his draft number came up, and it was very, 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 very low. And uh, it was obvious that he was going to miss some time. And you know, the, he was he was easily the most famous uh, baseball player who wound up getting drafted in 1941. A lot of these players who wound up serving time in the in, in the service uh, after the war, many of them didn't did, did, didn't actually have to leave until 1943 or 44. Some of them actually played mostly through 42. Uh, but Hank Greenberg missed all of 1941. His last game was on May 5th, and in, in an additional, you know, irony, uh, he was uh, discharged on December 5th, <laughs> which mm. is two days before Pearl Harbor. And obviously, so he was able to enjoy liberty for two days. The Pearl Harbor hits, and he reenlisted on December 8th. So, um, of all the people, in, you know, who who wound up serving their country, baseball players, uh, there's no doubt that that Greenberg sacrificed the most of his career because he not only sacrificed the war years, he also sacrificed you know, probably four-fifths of 1941 as well. Do I remember that it's Greenberg who had 
put in a request uh, for deferment as what was known uh, with uh, asking for the designation of a necessary man. Is that necessary, Greenberg? Necessary man, right. Which, uh, and, and here's the thing. I mean, it's interesting because we talk. It's, it's really interesting, especially given some of the some of the questions that in the media we deal with today about you know what's private, what's personal, how much of a, how much of our uh, per, uh, of several liberties personal lives should we delve into? Look, when when you were filling out your draft questionnaire in 1941. Uh, they asked you a lot, a lot of questions, and you were expected to give any reason why you might want to be deferred. And yes, Frank Reamer put, you know, sought, sought the idea of deferral as a necessary man, which meant somebody who was, who was completely necessary to, to, to his profession or to his, to, to his town. And while you could probably loosely define that as somebody who could hit baseballs over the sky and for, for, for the Detroit Tigers, really it was meant for you know, doctors in small towns or, or people whose businesses employ the entire city, that kind of thing. And that's what necessary men really were. But I mean, it wasn't like Hank Greenberg was the only person who applied for things like that. Everybody was encouraged to. The problem was not everybody was as famous as Hank Greenberg was, and you know, people you know got got information leaked to them, and that's you know it, it, very similar to what happened in 2007, and, and and so that kind of started something of a backlash against Hank Greenberg. And what's interesting is that you know in, in spring training when he was when he took his army physical, he was designated with flat feet, and flat feet meant you had a deferment in the uh, in, in 1941, and there were about 8,000 people I think in the country who got strict mental deferment strictly because of their flat feet. And, of course, that wasn't acceptable for someone who was making $50,000 a year playing baseball. If he could play baseball with his flat feet, the, tour, the, the, the theory went, certainly he could play, uh, he, 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 could, uh, he could be a soldier. Mm. And uh, so it was, it, it was, it was you know, exceedingly difficult for, for Greenberg, and in, in some ways it was a relief for him when he went in the Army because a lot of people started to, to, to actually call him a draft dodger. Mm. The stories here are so fascinating, and and uh, and for someone who maybe just knows a little bit about sports and doesn't know some of these stories very thoroughly, we end up learning so much. For instance, about the magnificent Joe DiMaggio and this incredible streak which he went on in 1941. Um, part of which, what I didn't know or or had forgotten was that that streak emerged out of what was uh, for a while a really dispiriting and bewildering slump. Just talk briefly about that. You know what? It's funny because DiMaggio had started that season like a house of fire. And, uh, in fact, after about two weeks of the season, people uh, wondered if, uh, you know, the, the, if the next you know, kind of hill for DiMaggio to conquer was to not only hit 400, but maybe to, to, to break Rogers Hornsby's record of 424 in a season. And then he went into the, into the biggest tailspin of his career to where he couldn't even he couldn't ever, he couldn't get out of his own way. And DiMaggio was the kind of guy who put so much pressure on himself. He would smoke cigarettes one after the other. He would gulp cup after cup of black coffee and would just worry about things, you know, to the point where he couldn't sleep at night. And when he was in the, the throes of the slump, he wondered if he would ever be able to hit a baseball again. And so it was out of this despair that he scratched out a base hit against the White Sox on May 15th. And then the next day he had another hit, the next day he had another hit. And soon he had 10 in a row and 12 in a row and 15 in a row and Interestingly, it wasn't until he reached game 33, I believe, until he, uh, until he finally figured, you know, he was cured of his slump. That's how much of a perfectionist <laughs> Maggio was. I mean, even, as, even though he had a 32-game hitting streak, he, you know, he still thought he was maybe not doing things quite as well as he should have. Uh, and, and, of course, once he got to 33, suddenly the all-time hitting streak record of 41 was in sight, and George Sisler held out at that time. And, uh, and suddenly that's when it really became kind of a national curiosity. Once he broke the record, it became something of a national fascination, and once it got past 50, it became something of a national obsession, uh, to the point where, uh, you know, when he would go on the road 
teams like the St. Louis Browns, who normally were lucky to get you know 2,000 people to their games, would uh, advertise in their town, come see the great DiMaggio, come see the fabulous DiMaggio, and that alone would draw 12,000, 13,000. In some stadiums, you know, 30, 40, 50,000. And, uh, you know, to the point where when, when the streak ultimately ended in Cleveland, there were over 60,000 people in the municipal stadium watching this event, what would have been game 57. And Ken Keltner was the name of the third baseman who twice robbed DiMaggio of, of would-be base hits that day. And after the game, uh, the local police came up to him and said, we want to take your, you, know, you and your wife to, their, to your car. And he thought they were kidding. And the cops said, uh, we're not kidding. There are people out there who really aren't very happy with what you did tonight. <laughs> and because it wasn't, you know, it, it was nothing personal. It was just that, you know, the, 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 the country is so caught up in this streak that even Cleveland Indians fans, while they wanted the Indians to beat the Yankees, they also wanted Joe DiMaggio to keep building his hitting streak. Hmm. Well, and you talk about how Joe DiMaggio, for, for all of his brilliance as a ball player, uh, was not yet one of those so-called forever players. He needed something to call his own, and ultimately that became the streak. I want to ask you about something else that you say about the streak, and in some ways it probably is applicable to uh, some of the other big stories you talk about, including Ted Williams and uh, and the great boxing battle between Joe Lewis and Billy Kahn. You said Joe DiMaggio wasn't only providing a respite from the real world. We've already talked about that. But he was also uh, providing respite from some of the darker aspects of the sports world, too. I thought that was a really interesting observation and one that might not necessarily jump out at us at first. Um, what are you talking about there? What, what are some of the most important ways in which this was sports at its best versus at its worst? You know, I think especially when you, when you relate to Maggio, and if you try and, you know, baseball is the kind of sport where you can where you can, uh, it crosses generational lines. I mean, you can actually ask a serious conversation about how Joe DiMaggio would perform today. And we kind of have this sense that sports, you know, is a haven for not only heroes, but also for some, for some darker and shadier characters. And uh, certainly there's a win-at-all-costs thought that sometimes pervades it. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about DiMaggio is that, especially this time, and look, later on, you know, we learn more about his personal life and stuff. And I think whenever we learn more about people's personal lives, I mean, it's kinda, it kind of diminishes what we thought about them just on the fields of play. But DiMaggio represented a certain ideal. You know, I mean, he was, a, he was the son of an immigrant. He was a high school dropout. Uh, he was the kind of person that, especially in a city of immigrants like New York City, you know, fathers could tell their sons, look at the great DiMaggio. If he can do this, so can you. And that's the kind of thing that sports weren't always uh, capable of, of showing, I think, in, 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 you know, in 1941 or anywhere else. And I think that by being able to provide that kind of an image, he really did kind of, he, he was really the first person, the first athlete that, that, that they became a role model. It, was, it, 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 was, it never occurred to anybody that anybody would want to model themselves after Babe Ruth, for instance. They marveled at what he did. I mean, they marveled at his performances off the, you know, on the field uh, and probably wouldn't have if they knew what he was performing off the field. But Joe DiMaggio was actually really one of the first guys that people said to themselves, you know what, I wouldn't, like to, I wouldn't mind being this guy. Even if I can't be a great baseball player, you know, I can live my life this way. I can have a certain dignity and a certain pride and performance that, uh, that, that he displayed every day. And uh, that really was, 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 was probably his greatest gift to the country in addition to the hitting streak. Hmm. Very good. I love how you finished the book by saying sports didn't solve any of the crises of the day or some of the other crises which you talk about at the end of the book, uh, which our country has, has, has faced. They didn't make any of the mounting calamities of 1941 any less real or any less toxic. 
They simply provided the best possible escape hatch for a couple of hours at a time to watch some of the most extraordinary athletes of the century perform some of its most extraordinary feats and string together what was and what remains the greatest year sports has ever seen. The book again is called 1941, published by Doubleday, its author, Mike Vaccaro. Mike Vaccaro, I just loved this book. I, I learned so much from it, and I really hope many people will seek it out and enjoy it as I did. And I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. Greg, that's very kind of you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. It was a lot of fun chatting about it with you. Thank you.